Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. My name is Sarah Jerezek, and you're listening to Around the Bend, a fair housing podcast by the Intermountain Fair Housing Council. A quick reminder that this is the fifth part of a six-episode miniseries, and I highly recommend listening chronologically because the information does build off itself. Today we're turning our attention to the history of Japanese internment. Today we're turning our attention to the history of Japanese internment in the 1940s. But of course we have to start with historical context. Japanese immigration to North America really got going during the 1880s. They traveled first to Hawaii as contract laborers and to work on sugar plantations. Now at the time, Hawaii was not a U.S. state or even a territory. It was a settlement, having been colonized by Europeans in much the way the rest of the Western Hemisphere was, aka violently, and without a lot of regard for the wishes of the indigenous or, in this case, aboriginal people that inhabited the land already. Hawaii was, quote, annexed officially in the 1890s, then making it an actual U.S. territory. Annexation is in short, an imperialist term used to sugarcoat the forceful seizure of a territory. A seizure is called an annexation when it has been governmentally approved by the colonizing entity to take over that land. In this case, the United States Congress voted within itself to approve the theft of Hawaii as a territory. However, it was not something that the Hawaiian people had any real say in, and honestly, the annexation was just a political move to prevent Hawaii from becoming annexed instead by the nation of Japan, who was also interested in the area. We should probably do a dedicated episode on this as well, but for now, just know that at this point, the U.S. was already not on great terms with Japan from, at the very least, a foreign relations aspect. There is such an importance here in differentiating between the idea of Japan as a nation and Japanese people as not merely an extension of the ideologies of that nation, but as actual autonomous human beings. We're going to return to this distinction again and again. Many Japanese immigrants eventually started immigrating to mainland North America in the late 1800s. This began in about 1885, when student laborers landed on the west coast of the United States. The earliest of these emigrated to San Francisco. Their numbers continually increased into the 1890s. But this was not specific to the western continental U.S. One of the earliest organized groups of Japanese immigrants settled in Mexico in 1897. Both students and laborers were attracted to the image of Mexico and the United States as countries that welcomed foreigners. When they first arrived, many didn't intend to remain permanently. Their purpose for moving to the Americas was to learn Western engineering methods and general advancement practices that would be beneficial to take back home to Japan. What they found instead, though, was that most of the careers available to them were manual labor jobs on railroads, in agriculture, mining, lumber, and on fishing boats. Like all migrant groups, they worked hard and saved money for their families and to buy land and homes for themselves. In 1882, Japanese immigration was affected by the Chinese Exclusion Act, which, despite targeting Chinese immigrants specifically, did impact all Asian immigrants. However, Japanese people were even more affected in 1924 by the Asian Exclusion Act, also known as the 1924 Immigration Act, or the National Origins Act. This was a federal U.S. law that prevented immigration from Asia as a whole, and set quotas on the number of immigrants from the entire Eastern Hemisphere. 
Now, at the time, the Eastern Hemisphere made up over two-thirds of the world's population. So the ramifications of this policy were enormous and went far and beyond any immigration policy that had preceded it. You may remember that in our second episode of the series on Mexican immigration, we discussed the unofficial beginning of what was to become U.S. Border Patrol at the southern U.S. border with Mexico. Well, that unofficial entity transitioned into a formally established body thanks to this act, the Asian Exclusion Act. Similarly to the ways that the Chinese Exclusion Act set the groundwork for and validated violence and discrimination against Chinese immigrants that realistically continues to this day, the Asian Exclusion Act literally laid the framework for all the unconstitutional actions against people of Japanese ancestry that would take place over the next few decades. By the Great Depression, the first generation of Japanese immigrants had not only established communities around the country, they had started families, and their children and even their children's children were now coming of age. There are actually dedicated terms for each of these generations. The first generation are referred to as Isai, which is a Japanese language term used to specify Japanese people who were born in Japan and who then are the generation to actually immigrate to parts of North and South America. Their children are then born in the new country, be that the U.S., Mexico, or elsewhere in North and South America, and they are called the Nisai, Ni meaning two and Sai meaning generation. So you have the Isai, the first generation, Nisai, second generation, and their grandchildren are Sansai, or third generation. The Nisai and Sansai spoke English more fluently than their parents simply because they'd grown up around it, and they also had assimilated into a more Western lifestyle and adopted American culture to a greater degree than the older generation had. The most notable generational difference, however, is that the Nisai and Sansai, having been born within the United States, were legally U.S. citizens. Their parents, the Isai, however, having been born in Japan and because of various anti-Asian immigration laws, were not even eligible for citizenship. Now remember this because we're going to come back to it. Something we haven't talked about so far is the anti-miscegenation laws, or laws prohibiting interracial marriage, or cohabitation, that existed all over the country really until about 1948, when California became the first state Supreme Court to strike down such a prohibition. So until 1967, when in Loving v. Virginia, the United States Supreme Court found anti-miscegenation laws to be totally unconstitutional, marriages between Japanese Americans and white Americans, or even between Japanese Americans and people of other races, were at the least not recognized by some states and, at most, were actually illegal. Entire non-white communities were attacked and burned by mobs of white people after even just the rumor of a person of color dating or showing interest in a white man or woman. This happened a lot. We could and probably should also do an episode on anti-miscegenation laws at some point because they are in such direct violation of the Fair Housing Act, which protects gender, race, color, and, of course, national origin. When the United States declared war on the nation of Japan soon after the attack on Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, it didn't matter how assimilated Japanese Americans living in the U.S. may have been or how well they spoke English— where U.S. policy was concerned, and where anti-Japanese propaganda was concerned, it didn't even matter how much a community relied upon the goods or services their Japanese neighbors may have provided. 
What mattered in the eyes of the United States government and realistically to the white population as a whole was that they were Japanese. On February 19, 1942, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066, which allowed the creation of military exclusion zones and allowed relocation of all persons who were to be excluded from such zones. This was a strategic move on the part of the U.S. government with a definite exterior motive. Basically, the entire west coast of the United States was declared an exclusion zone. The United States decided that another attack on U.S. soil by the Japanese was most likely to occur on the west coast simply because of its proximity to Japan. Incidentally, and because of the natural direction of geographic migration, the west coast is also where most of the Japanese-American population resided. These exclusion zones allowed the government to relocate anyone deemed as a threat to national security. White people convinced themselves that was Japan to invade the West Coast, the 100,000-plus Japanese-American people living in the country would immediately take up arms and turn against the United States. This, of course, was nonsense and ultimately just allows the excuse to round up masses of Japanese-Americans. But the measure nonetheless sentenced 120,000 innocent people to incarceration in internment camps for the following two to four years. There was some opposition to the order. Court cases did attempt to overturn it. When the case of Korematsu v. the United States reached the Supreme Court in 1944, the singular dissenting justice was Justice Frank Murphy, who said that the exclusion zones and internment of Japanese Americans, quote, falls into the ugly abyss of racism. This was the first time the word racism was ever used in a Supreme Court opinion. Ultimately, however, the Supreme Court overruled the case and the camps were allowed to continue for the next few years. Now let's go back to what we learned earlier about what was, at this point, three generations of Japanese Americans. The Nisai and the Sansai at this point made up about two-thirds of the folks who were incarcerated, around 70,000 people. And having been born in the United States, they were also American citizens. This is super important. These were not people who had ever set foot in Japan. Because of various immigration acts, they literally could not go to Japan. And of those who weren't citizens, many had lived in the country between 20 and 40 years, and some had no real contact with anyone still living in Japan. This is why I made that distinction earlier, that people who may have once lived in a country or maybe the descendants of people from that country are not the embodiment of that country's government or even their ideals. Japanese Americans were not an extension of the Japanese empire any more than Italian Americans in the 1930s and 40s were an extension of Mussolini's fascist regime. That's just not how it works. No Japanese-American citizen or Japanese national residing in the United States was ever found guilty of sabotage or espionage while we were at war with Japan. It just didn't happen. Regardless, 10 internment camps were erected in the United States to incarcerate Japanese-Americans, one of which, the Minidoka War Relocation Center, is in south-central Idaho. At its peak, Minidoka housed 9,397 Japanese Americans, predominantly from Oregon, Washington, and Alaska. Life in the relocation center was difficult, especially since living conditions were far from comfortable. When the first incarcerees arrived at Minidoka, the camp was only partially constructed. 
sewage systems, and plumbing would not be completed for months. Due to the influx of people arriving and the need for housing, the barracks were crudely and swiftly constructed. Minidoka had 36 residential blocks. Each block had 12 barracks, a mess hall, and a latrine. The barracks were divided into six units, and these would house a family or a small group of individuals. In each of these tiny units was a single light bulb and a coal-burning stove. The walls dividing the units didn't extend all the way to the ceiling, and the barracks had absolutely no insulation. There was little to no privacy for anybody. Additionally, environmental conditions at Minidoka were especially harsh in comparison to what many of the incarcerees were accustomed to. Coming from the Pacific Northwest, most didn't have the proper clothing for the high desert environment of Idaho. In the winter, temperatures frequently dropped below freezing, while in the summer, the dry desert heat often reached above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. The camp itself was kept in better condition than many other camps of the sort, and it served as a sort of pseudo-town and had two elementary schools, a high school, a gym, a skating rink, baseball diamonds, farms, livestock, stores, a hospital, salons, a library, a fire station, and various other businesses and types of employment. I think that this is a really phenomenal thing to stop and focus on. In captivity, humans carry on with what matters most to them. Educating their children, taking care of one another, that never goes away. We see this in German concentration camps. We see this as Native American people are pushed into reservations. We see this anytime people are ripped from their homes and their communities. And it ultimately is a inclination to heal and repair that root shock. As the war continued, tensions rose, especially with the reintroduction of the draft that troubled many of the residents of Minidoka. This was very understandable. To be forced into military service for a country that had wrongfully stolen your livelihood and incarcerated your entire family it was maddening. Minidoka ultimately had the highest percentage of incarcerees from the 10 internment camps that served in the military. Something called the Honor Roll was built by internees of the camp to honor the reported 844 people from the camp who did end up serving in the military during World War II. In December of 1944, when the exclusion orders banning Japanese Americans from the West Coast were finally lifted, some 80,000 people were left in incarceration. A leave program had hastened the departure of about 35,000 people who could pass security clearance and show that they had job offers or a college spot waiting for them. This primarily benefited the young who were released to areas outside of the West Coast. Those who stayed behind were disproportionately elderly immigrants, not fluent in English, denied naturalization because of their race, and left without a livelihood Many didn't want to leave for fear of what kind of anti-Japanese hostility was waiting for them outside of the camps. They literally had nothing to go home to. Because of this, many internees were once again forcibly removed. They were left with little time to pack up their belongings. Pets, clothing, food, and family valuables were left behind in the rushed exit. And according to an article by Nancy Ukai in Smithsonian Magazine, in Idaho, scrap lumber from Minidoka that was put on sale the day after Christmas drew a long line of trucks, whose drivers also picked up dining tables and cupboards from the site. Administrators helped themselves as well. 
and after a final survey of the barracks on October 23rd, officials enjoyed a Dutch menu in the dining hall and chatted about their findings. I think it's important to reiterate that root shock tends to happen to the same groups of people over and over and over again. People are continuously displaced, and this is a really good example of that. The Minidoka internment camp site was listed on the National Register of Historic Places on July 10, 1979, and a national monument was established at the site in 2001. In 2006, the restoration of all 10 of the relocation centers as historic places was given funding. On top of these internment camps, and what seems to be a little less widely known, is that there were also a number of war camps around the country in the 1940s. During World War II, the United States forcibly relocated and incarcerated people in a total of 75 identified incarceration sites. Idaho actually housed another camp called Kuskia Internment Camp, and Kuskia is located in northern Idaho, about 30 miles northeast of the town of Kuskia. Originally a remote highway work camp, in 1943 it was converted to house more than 250 interned Japanese men, most of whom were longtime U.S. residents, but not citizens, and were branded, quote, enemy aliens. What's also unknown to many is that the government put the internees of Kuskia internment camp to work. Men from the camp are responsible for the construction of the Lewis and Clark Highway, which crosses the entire Idaho panhandle, extending from Washington to Montana. Internees were paid only around $50 to $60 per month for their labor on the construction of the highway. That's about $800 a month, and far less than what they should have been making at their respective places of work pre-internment. In December of 1982, the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians concluded that the incarceration of Japanese Americans had not been justified by military necessity. That report determined that the decision to incarcerate was based on, quote, race, prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. There's a lot of nostalgia for the United States' governmental leadership during World War II especially, but we really can't overlook the absolute atrocity that was internment camps at this time. In the words of Emily Towney Weingarten, whose grandparents were held at the Minidoka internment camp, it didn't matter if you were a U.S. citizen. It didn't matter if you were born as an American. All that mattered was that your skin was dark and therefore you were seen as a threat because of Pearl Harbor. Says Paul Tomita, another survivor of Minidoka who is now in his 80s, the repercussions of World War II incarcerations are still being felt, and history is being repeated. Same thing, different era. This is because, as Emily Tanny Weingarten pointed out, there really is no level of assimilation satisfactory enough to spare the persecution of people of color within an ideology that's built on white supremacy. And I know I keep bringing this up, but it's really at the core here. This same mindset is what rationalized the genocide of countless Native people and then the mass enslavement of millions of African people, followed quickly by the exploitation of immigrants from Mexico, China, Ireland, etc. And Paul Tamita, who I quoted before, and other Japanese Americans are taking action with the allies they didn't have in World War II to defend people who are under attack now. The conditions which gave rise to their exile and which gave birth to internment camps 
must never be allowed to happen again. There's a common thread here in all of these stories, and that underlying theme is actually the focus of our next and final episode, the thing tying all of this together and that is in direct opposition with the ideals of fair housing, Manifest Destiny. If you or someone you know has experienced housing discrimination because of their national origin, race, gender, or any of the seven protected classes, please reach out to the Intermountain Fair Housing Council today. You can find the link to contact us in the description of this episode. The Intermountain Fair Housing Council is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to ensure open and inclusive housing for all persons without regard to race, color, sex, religion, national origin, familial status, sexual orientation, gender identity, a source of income, or disability. The work that provided the basis for this presentation was supported by funding under a grant with the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. The creator is solely responsible for the accuracy of the statements and interpretations contained in this presentation. Such interpretations do not necessarily reflect the views of the federal government.